Livingston having an impulse to swallow his tongue, right? How could this possibly be? And he, he apparently uh, finally got out, well, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the award-winning podcast that tells you everything you need to know about Western Connecticut State University. Today, our guest is a history professor, one of our hero professors, Dr. Kevin Gutzman, who has written yet another book. He has several in his portfolio, and they, if you look at Amazon, they look like they're pretty popular with lots of good fellows reads or... I forget what they call it, but a lot of people liking them. And uh, we talked to him today about what he found, how he goes about it, and uh, how it relates to today's world. Yeah, he's been on, I think, two or three times at this point. So yeah. it's always good. It's yes. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Not unlike uh, uh, the Brian Stevens episode where he talked about history and uh-huh. how it just... You know, I, I always think about history as something I used to learn about in school. You know, I don't do a lot of nonfiction reading. I don't do a lot of history stuff. But uh, it's always fascinating how how real this can be for people now. Mm-hmm. You know, how, and like, you, you know, during the, the interview, how relevant it can be. Yes. Um, which is, is cool, but it's also kind of scary. <laughs> you know, stuff <laughs> that happened scary. hundreds of years ago is still happening yes. kind of exactly the same way. So some of the bad stuff too. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that you get you read enough about these guys in a long book like this, and you start to see them more as humans instead of just somebody you read about in a book who's not really real. There's they were real people. There's some of them were very smart and brave, uh, but they also had they were you know they could be on the podcast and we could have a conversation with them. Yeah, I think maybe it's just the the distance of history, but we think of them as being very 2D, being, you know, yeah. uh, characterized by one thing or, mm-hmm. you know, that they, but you're right, they were just as, you know, the same way that you think about the past as being black and white when it really looked just like this, yes. it's kind of the same thing. <laughs> you have to think about them as normal weirdo people just yes, like us. Exactly, with a bunch of problems. We don't know about the pro- we don't read as much or retain as much about all the little niggling problems they had back then that they that consumed them and that in some cases led to uh, us running things the way we run them today in America. Yeah. Now we have Dr. Kevin Gutzman as I said, longtime history professor here at Western Connecticut State University and author of several books. What's the what's this most recent book called? Thank you for mentioning up. that. <laughs> I haven't mentioned it before. It's called The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Cool. Yeah. Madison and Monroe were both called James, too. I couldn't the whole time I couldn't remember Monroe's first name. I assumed it was John or something, but I yeah. was like I couldn't place it. We I had a ruler when I was a kid sure. that had little po- photos of all the presidents that only went up to Reagan at the time. But uh some of them were really funny and some of them, I just remember James Buchanan was very goofy looking. Yes. So in my head that's <laughs> I can't remember what Monroe looked like. It turns out Buchanan is Consistently ranked the worst president really? in U.S. history. 
fascinating. Why? Because he was the one before Lincoln, and the Civil War was brewing, and oh. the fights between North and South, and he did nothing or was incapable of doing anything to fix it. Fascinating. Yeah. The worst. All right. Well, let's, let's hear from... Yes. <laughs> Dr. Kevin Gutzman. All right. Can we start by talking about how you went about writing this book? Like, is there a starting place or a first step you take? Oh, well, uh, in 2012, my book, James Madison and the Making of America, was published. And I had the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Daniel Walker Howe write a cover blurb for it. Mm -hmm. And when he gave me the blurb, he said, I quite liked your book, but I wish you had devoted more attention to Madison's presidency. Hmm. And so when I finished my most recent book, which is about Thomas Jefferson's political program, I thought, well, hmm, how about this presidency idea? The thing is, though, that if you're going to write about Madison's presidency, it essentially was a continuous administration with Jefferson's presidency in which he had been Secretary of State and kind of the chief political operative. And then I realized, once I started thinking about that, that, well, Monroe's presidency was more of the same. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about that, or at least from the nerdy point of view of a history professor, <laughs> uh, was that although Jefferson is and always has been a kind of favorite among the book-buying public and mm -hmm. scholars find him fascinating and Madison has been the subject of a lot of attention from political scientists and historians since a famous book about him came out in 1988. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a book about this subject. That is, there is no other account of the six terms of Virginia Republican presidents and their um, sympathizers in Congress running the government until this book came out. So uh, I thought, well, Howe had a good idea, mm -hmm. and but he didn't realize that it should have been far broader in scope than just a an account of Madison's presidency. And actually, people who read the book will note that Madison's presidency is kind of low point of this time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll maybe get to that. But uh, it's a really interesting subject. They basically implemented the entire program that Jefferson laid out in his first inaugural address, which is one of maybe, I don't know, three first inaugural addresses worth reading. Mm -hmm. And they did everything he said, essentially, some of it was a spectacular success, and some of it was a gigantic debacle, and here we are. Right. It's interesting that nobody else had written about it before because it is kind of right out there. Right, right. And uh, once, I told, once I began telling other historians I was working on this, their answer invariably was, wow, yeah, there's not another account of that. <laughs> so here we are. So do you... Is everything that you cite in the book uh, first sources, and have you been spent? Did you spend all that time in libraries and dusty attics and things like that? Uh, well, it is based largely on primary material, but the fortunate thing, from the point of view of somebody who wanted to take up a project like this, is that beginning in 1940, there has been an effort through what's called the Thomas Jefferson Papers Project to publish all of Jefferson's surviving writings hmm. in handy volumes. So, that, as I said, that started in 1940. It's still not complete. Wow. And uh, besides that, there's a Madison 
Uh, there was a Madison Congressional Series, which really is about his political career up to becoming president. And then there's a, well, there's a Madison Secretary of State Series, and then there's a Madison Presidency Series. So there are other people who are prominent in my account, uh, John Quincy Adams, John Calhoun, John Marshall, mm -hmm. uh, whose papers have also been published, which means that unlike somebody who wanted to embark on this project, say, a century ago, mm -hmm. I didn't have to go to myriad tiny libraries to find one letter, right. you know, each, but instead could rely mainly on primary materials that have been collected. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that was a lot of what I did. I became very familiar with the writings of Albert Gallatin and John Randolph and people who, William Johnson, people whose names are not mm -hmm. familiar to most even well-informed scholars. But This guy Gallatin was just in the middle of everything yes. for a long time. Right. Gallatin was genius. Um, he in the 90s had been, well, back up a little bit, he was the fellow who's Life disproves the general theory among historians, quote-unquote, dukes don't emigrate. Mm -hmm. So Gallatin's uh, paternal line, well, he was from Geneva, and his paternal line included people who had been among the founders of Geneva. Mm. And then in his direct ancestry were five people who had been chief executives of Geneva, mm -hmm. which in those days was a little state. And uh, when Albert Gallatin got to late teens, early 20s, he announced to his family that this place is boring. I'm going to go to North America. <laughs> so he came to North America not knowing English, and he ended up teaching French at Harvard. I guess that's how he learned English. Oh. And he was there for a little while, and he decided, well, enough of this. So he and the friend who had come with him traveled around the country and went to various, various places, and finally they settled on, he settled on western Pennsylvania. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound like a an antidote to boredom. <laughs> uh, but out in western Pennsylvania, Gallatin quickly was recognized by natives of the country as really uh, eminent intellect. And in a short time, he became kind of the Republican answer to, Al to uh, Alexander Hamilton when it came to financial mm -hmm. policy and that kind of thing. So he leapt up through the state legislature and ended up in the Congress where he was a prominent Jeffersonian. And it was obvious to Jefferson that he ought to be, as he had been the fiscal leader of the Republicans in Congress, he ought to be Secretary of Treasury. Mm -hmm. So now he um, is the person in American history who was the longest serving major cabinet officer. He was Secretary of Treasury for more than 11 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was he was very important in the Jefferson administration, the whole policy formulation mm -hmm. uh, operation in the Jefferson administration. Among other things, Gallatin established a timeline on which the American federal debt would be retired. People often say, uh, well, <laughs> they, if they admire uh, Andrew Jackson, it's because he paid off the federal debt. Mm -hmm. But he paid off the federal debt on exactly the day that Gallatin's program called for finally extinguishing the debt. Mm -hmm. So he just happened to be in office when Gallatin's plan came to fruition. And he's a, Gallatin's a very interesting guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he, had ex, he had great interest in American Indian culture and languages, and he ultimately became one of the chief founder of New York University. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of stories about him that are worth reading about, some of which I hope people will find in the book. Yes. 
Yeah. I did. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, and the re retiring the debt or the idea of how the country having debt was one of those big differences between Jefferson and Hamilton. Right. Correct? Right. So <clears throat> in the early 18th century, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, that is what we would think of as a Treasury Secretary, had ended up as prime minister. That's mm -hmm. where the office came from. And the reason why he was able to become prime minister was because he had his hands on people's money, right? So Jefferson and other Republicans thought we didn't want to re recapitulate this experience in the United States. And they also believed that Hamilton was trying to recapitulate that experience. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make the Treasury Secretary the chief officer of the government. So that's one reason why there came to be a Republican opposition in the 1790s to Hamilton's program as main policy formulator of the Washington administration. And what were known as the Federalists, right? Washington right. and Hamilton. Right. The Federalists, well, uh, there are actually three different groups in American history called Federalists. One group were the people who wanted to strengthen the federal government in the 1770s and 80s, and that would include people like Madison and Jefferson. Hmm. Um, and then in the 1790s, there's a political party that was organized by Hamilton to support his program as Treasury Secretary. And as we see in the book, that party would cease to exist because its opposition was so much more uh, popular than it was. Mm -hmm. And the third group, of course, are people who, even today, people who favor the federal principle are called Federalists, mm -hmm. the lowercase f. Right. So, it's a little confusing. Yes. Well, I try to get this point across to my undergrads, and <laughs> I, every, every semester I find that some of them don't quite get this. Yes. But, <laughs> but anyway, the same terminology is used for three groups. Right. Yeah. So with, uh, is there any place in your book that experts on Jefferson and the era will read and say, oh, my God, how come I didn't uh, write this? Oh, sure. Yes. Well, uh, the main, well, one point that I make in the book, actually it's a point I made in my book about uh, Madison's constitutional career, is that Madison's appointment of Joseph Story to the Supreme Court, if the point, if the goal of, uh, if the measure of a Supreme Court appointment is the extent to which it will lead to the uh, reflection of the president's constitutional position in the work of the Supreme Court, the appointment of Joseph Story may be the worst appointment in, <laughs> in the history of the Supreme Court. And this is somewhat surprising because Story is a famous Supreme Court justice. He was very influential, mm -hmm. but it turned out he was a Hamiltonian. He was a, he was a second vote for John Marshall's program. And mm -hmm. one leitmotif of the book is that while the Republicans are so successful in politics that literally the opposition party ceases to exist, yet... The, John Marshall and Joseph Story and other Federalists are writing the Federalist position, the Hamiltonian principles of centralization into constitutional law. So even now, for example, when I went to law school at the University of Texas um, in the late 80s, I had a very eminent con law professor. And in our first class, we talked about uh, Marbury versus Madison, and then mm -hmm. came McCulloch versus Maryland. So even now, mm -hmm. the measure of the powers of the Congress comes from these opinions from the court during this era my book is about that were entirely anti-Jeffersonian. Mm -hmm. So the Jeffersonians win all the political battles, but they're losing the constitutional war. And Jefferson laments this over and over <laughs> in the book. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
It's very interesting. I think the um, so much is ha happening that relates to the creation of the United States during this period. Like you say, even the role of the Supreme Court and how that's going to work and the National Bank and all these other different things um, that <laughs> is different, a little different than now because we aren't really creating what America is in quite the same sense. Well, yes. It, it, one reason why the politics of the 1790s were so hyperheated is that the, the government was kind of a blank slate. Mm -hmm. And so people were aware, they were highly conscious of the fact that the precedents that they were establishing by their maybe unthinking activity in high federal office were going to be seen as binding on their on their uh, posterity. Right. So huh, people were unhappy with, from the Jeffersonian point of view, the Hamiltonian behavior of the 1790s, or from the Hamiltonian point of view, Jefferson's behavior in the 1790s mm -hmm. and his supporters' behavior. Uh, people realized that this was extremely important, and that's why over and over again in the book you see leading uh, Republicans complaining about what John Marshall's doing mm -hmm. because they see that, you know, here we're going to be uh, more than two centuries later, as I say, we still start to study the Constitution by reading John Marshall's opinions. <laughs> and a, a, as, this, as these opinions are being written, his party is ceasing to exist. Right. And Jefferson laments over and over. The, the, he says the main flaw in the Constitution is there's no way to correct what the court does, which is true, more mm -hmm. or less. Yeah. yeah. We still have that. Yes, we yeah. still debate it all the time. Right, right. What struck me, one of the things that struck me was that Jefferson himself was thinking about the Constitution. Not that I, I knew he was thinking about the Constitution, but how do you make things work under the Constitution, like the Louisiana Purchase? Uh, and they're just, you can see in the book, they're, it's a little bit more complex than making it up as they go, but there right. were a lot of conflicts, even in his mind. Well, when it came to the issue of the, of the Louisiana Purchase, it turns out Jefferson was the only substantial Republican who thought it was unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is, um, he had sent a minister, what we would call an ambassador to France, Livingston from New York, and uh, famously, um, Livingston had a, a kind of audience with the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, and he had floated the idea of our, that is the United States, buying New Orleans from the French. But, President Jefferson had privately said that there is one spot on the map, the possessor of which must be an enemy of the United States, and that is New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So their idea was, well, we'll buy it. And apparently, uh, after Livingston said this to Talleyrand, Talleyrand looked at him for a minute, and then he smiled, and he said, how about if I sold you all of Louisiana? <laughs> when Louisiana included from today's state of Louisiana all the way up into what is now Canada. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of imagine... Um, Livingston having an impulse to swallow his tongue, right? How could this possibly be? And he, he apparently uh, finally got out, well, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> and uh, Madison, uh, Mad uh, Secretary of State Madison had sent James Monroe to help with this negotiation, but it turns out that Talleyrand and Livingston had agreed to Louisiana's uh, sale mm -hmm. uh, before Monroe even got to France. Mm -hmm. So when the word of it got back to North America, um, 
Secretary of State M Madison was giddy. This is amazing. Of course, we're going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it seems that everybody had this opinion. Uh, Gallatin liked the idea. Um, the only person who was uncomfortable with it was the president. Mm -hmm. And the president's question was, well, where do we get constitutional authority to do this? And Madison's answer was, well, you know, if you look at Article 2 of the Constitution, it says you can enter into treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. It doesn't say what kinds of treaties. So that would have to include common kinds of treaties, treaties of peace, treaties of alliance, trade treaties, and would have been common then, of course, not at all common now, but it would have been common then to have a treaty that bought and sold territory, mm -hmm. which little European countries were constantly doing, kind of to adjust their borders, especially in Germany, but mm. other parts of Central Europe too. Mm. So Madison thought, well, saying that you can enter into treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate covers this. The only person who was, the only substantial Republican I can identify who had any difficulty with this idea mm. was the president. Mm -hmm. And so his first response was, well, hmm, I think we need to propose an amendment to the Congress and then have the states ratify it. And meanwhile, while this discussion is going on, a letter comes across the Atlantic from Livingston saying, Bonaparte has changed his mind. Like, you need to hurry up and agree to this because they're about to say, oh, forget it. That was just an idea. So um, Jefferson finally decided that, well, sometimes the executive will just have to take advantage of fleeting opportunities and then hope the people will forgive him. So that's what he, that yeah. was basically his point. Mm -hmm. He never was persuaded that he had... Uh, regular course of business authority to do this kind of thing, even though, as I said, all of his chief advisors were telling him it's fine. Mm -hmm. And you might think, well, uh, you know, who knows more about what the Constitution means than James Madison? Right. But um, they went ahead and did it. And in fact, this was what really meant the death of the Federalist Party. The, mm. the Louisiana Purchase was so popular all over the country because, for example, in places like New England, where essentially all the land was claimed, and people in those days had very large broods. Mm -hmm. uh, younger sons no longer had land to farm, right. so they were having to move west. Mm -hmm. And this could mean, Jefferson said, well, now we're going to have land enough for our people to farm to the thousandth and thousandth generation. <laughs> of course, he was not <laughs> contemplating large-scale immigration, right. but he thought this would mean uh, perpetual... Republican dominance of the country, an economy that was based on farming, which Jefferson thought was ideally suited to Republican self-government. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, people in New England, Federalists in New England, were very unhappy about this because they too thought it meant the Republicans were going to run the government right. forever. Right. And ultimately, this ends, it ends up being the main factor in the disappearance of the Federalist Party. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And But at the same time, the... Uh, Republicans were starting to have issues with each other, right? And even Monroe and Madison and Jefferson would right. disagree. And yes. Well, uh, Jefferson, looking back on his two-term administration, said they never had a substantial disagreement in the cabinet. Hmm. He and Madison and Gallatin and the other figures who were holding the minor offices of, of uh, Navy Secretary and War Secretary and Attorney General, uh, but the chief formulators were Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin. 
he said, sometimes we disagree, but we just talk things through and we never had an angry word. Mm -hmm. And this is how they made policy in the Jefferson administration. Um, and you had a sim similar kind of situation in the Madison administration, although he didn't have such able lieutenants. Mm. And then the Monroe administration is slightly different. Monroe, <clears throat> of course, these, the first two, Jefferson and Madison, are, were famously very brilliant, highly cultivated when it came to their intellects. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Monroe had been 18 in 1776. So he was one of a cohort of students at the College of William and Mary who quit school to go join the Continental Army. Mm -hmm. And that meant that he was the one of these three fellows who was a veteran of the American Revolution. And in fact, he, uh, uh, this term is used uh, loosely, but I'm using it uh, in a very uh, discriminating way. Monroe was an authentic hero of the Revolution. He was seriously wounded at Trenton, mm -hmm. and the, one can argue that the victory of the Continental Army at the Battle of Trenton was Monroe's doing. Mm -hmm. So One of the critical battles of the war. Yes. So um, when he, this meant that his, his intellect was not cultivated the way that Jefferson's and Madison's were, mm -hmm. but he appointed two brilliant men to be his chief cabinet officers, John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts as Secretary of State and John Calhoun from South Carolina as his war secretary, and they almost invariably gave him good advice. Mm -hmm. So um, at, years after the Monroe administration ended, Someone asked Calhoun, who by this point had become a prominent senator, um, he asked Calhoun how he would evaluate Monroe's intellect. And he said, well, Mon uh, President Monroe was not brilliant, but the thing is, he had extremely good judgment. <laughs> and he said, I can't remember a, a major question on which he came to the wrong conclusion. Mm. And, of course, part of this must reflect the fact that he listened to Calhoun a lot. Right. But he also listened to John Quincy Adams. And so I tell stories in the book about cabinet discussions and the way that Monroe kind of guided the discussions. And, and he did come to the right decisions mm -hmm. most of the time. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a notable fact. Good for presidents yes. to have that. Yes. And, and, of course, in our day, the government being far larger, um, this is even an even more desirable attribute, <laughs> I right. think. Yeah. right. Well, uh, Monroe, I guess, wasn't part of Jefferson's cabinet, but he uh, he helped negotiate that treaty in, with England, right? That yeah. Jefferson uh, rejected. Oh yes, that actually uh, Monroe thought this was the reason why the United States had ongoing trouble with um, with England, and this is called the Monroe Pinckney Treaty. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people, including Monroe at the time and a dissident faction in the Republican Party thought that the reason why Jefferson had not approved the treaty was because if Congress received this treaty and if the Senate ratified it, that might make Monroe look like a more appealing option for the succession to Jefferson than Madison was. Mm -hmm. And Jefferson thought Madison should be the next president. Maybe that's not why Jefferson didn't sign off on the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty, but I think it probably was the yeah. reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there ends up being a kind of, I mean, you might expect that when the, the opposition party uh, essentially vanished, that there'd be splintering among the Republicans, mm -hmm. and I tell a story about that, too. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing about um, Monroe is that he is the only president in American history who had been an anti-federalist. That is, he had voted against ratifying the Constitution in the Virginia Ratification Convention, and so in 
Virginia politics. Oh, one other thing is at the beginning of the book, I tell the story about events that were going on around Richmond just as Jefferson was being elected. Mm-hmm. Monroe was governor of Virginia, and there was what we think was the biggest slave conspiracy in American history. Mm-hmm. It, ha- it happened just as the election was ongoing, and Monroe had to had to try to put it down. And this this made him very unhappy, right? He, in fact, there's an interesting correspondence between him and Vice President Jefferson in which the two of them agree that the slave rebels were actually heroes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Jefferson says, of course, we must treat them as criminals, but we, if we could find somewhere else to send them, they would be received as heroes, which mm. they are. So in this conversation, this is all going on at the end of 1800, beginning of 1801. Um, in this conversation or in this exchange of letters, Monroe says for the first time, that he would like to see slavery cease to exist in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And this leads to the interesting uh, question, what, what, sh- what would somebody like that do? Say you were governor of Virginia and you decided, I don't want to enforce slavery. You couldn't just pardon all the slave rebels because you'd be encouraging more rebellions. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he didn't, want to, he didn't want to punish these people the way that the law required they be punished. So it's really a kind of scorpions in a bottle kind mm-hmm. of situation that they're in. Jefferson tells him, Uh, when he first writes to Jefferson about what to do about this problem, uh, we in this neighborhood, meaning Charlottesville, which is about 60 miles from Richmond, we think there's been hanging enough. Mm. And in fact, Governor Monroe pardoned some of the rebels, uh, which you might think is kind of surprising. They were guilty of... And in fact, the, the goal of this slave conspiracy was to kidnap Monroe the governor, Mm -hmm. and try to negotiate an end of slavery with the other white people in Virginia's political Mm -hmm. hierarchy. So it's a very, it's a very odd note on which the Jeffersonian uh, dominance of the federal government is coming to be. This Mm -hmm. rebellion is happening at the same time. Right. I mean, slavery, uh, the whole issue with slavery, uh, kind of permeated all their presidencies and of course society, I guess, too. Um, and none of these three men is happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Madison ends up being the head of what's called for years. He was the president of the American Colonization Society, which was a 19th century, uh, I guess you could call it political lobbying group, whose purpose was to find some place outside of the United States to which slaves could be sent. Mm-hmm. So the goal of it was to have an end of slavery, but... Uh, as Jefferson had written in his book, Notes in the State of Virginia, he thought that prejudice among the whites and the hostility of the blacks, which had been earned by the whites through enforcement of slavery, mm-hmm. meant it impossible, made it impossible to have a biracial society in Virginia, um, meaning, of course, at this point, the United States in general. Right. And so they thought, well, we need to find somewhere else they could go be free. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Nowadays, of course, this all sounds very antediluvian, but if you try to put your mind in the situation of people who uh, had been born into a world in which slavery had never been questioned, it had never been mm-hmm. uh, attacked as immoral, and they're among the very first people in the world who are, and maybe they're the first people with substantial political power in the world who decided this is immoral, it needs mm-hmm. to go, then what do you do about it? You mm-hmm. can't, they're not dictators. They can't just declare, okay, no more of this. And the practical problems are, well, how do we persuade the common voter 
to do something about it. And then if we could do that, what would that something be? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's odd that there's this coincidence of this question reaching the fore just as Jefferson's being elected and Monroe as the chief target of the conspiracy, Mm -hmm. having to uh, discuss with his political patron, Jefferson, well, what, are we, what am I going to do? I don't even really know how to handle And, of course, you might think, well, I, have, I would pardon all the slaves. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is then you'd be encouraging more conspiracies. And, right. of course, the goal was widespread killing of citizens. Mm-hmm. So that, that was not practically feasible. Right. It really is, uh, really is a very interesting scenario. <laughs> yes. And then as President Monroe... Uh, brought forth or was part of the Missouri Compromise, right? Yes. Not only that, but he also took the anti-slavery step of founding the uh, West African country of Liberia as a place to which freed slaves from America could be sent. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but but back to this Missouri Compromise, what happened was, we talked a few minutes ago about the Louisiana Purchase. So this, what became the state of Missouri had come to have sufficient population that people who lived there could write a state constitution and then apply to Congress for statehood. And when they did that, the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, another prominent figure in the book, uh, decided, well, you know, this is going to be just a regular administrative matter. In the last few days of a Congress, he sent it to an unimportant committee thinking they would report it out to Congress and Congress would vote okay. But what ended up happening instead was that there ended up being a two-year-long debate over the question, what to do about slavery in Louisiana territory? Because some people um, said, well, we should exclude slavery from this territory altogether. Mm -hmm. The the American Revolution was not about spreading slavery wherever the flag went. And some, you know, people who opposed this position when it came to Louisiana territory did agree with that point about the the revolution. Mm So they have an ongoing dispute about this, and this is one of those areas where um, Monroe ended up taking Calhoun's advice. Calhoun told him the most important question, the most important matter related to the the, uh, Missouri crisis is to get it over with, because Calhoun said this could break up the union. This Mm -hmm. could mean the end of the United States. So we need to, you need to let Congress work its way through these questions, and then you need to agree to what they conclude, which. If you know about Calhoun, you might think, well, that's kind of a surprising mm-hmm. position. His, his views about these things would change markedly after the period the book is about. But at this point, his chief goal was perpetuation of the Union. And so um, Monroe took his advice. He essentially signed off on the Missouri, uh, the Missouri Compromise. And one of the dissident Republicans, Jefferson's cousin, John Randolph of Roanoke, who's maybe my favorite character in the book. He's just amazingly amusing and, yeah. and the quickest wit I've ever encountered. Hmm. Uh, he said, well, that's the end of it. That means eventually the end of slavery in the United States because we're going to have all these new states that are going to come into the Union. None of them is going to have slavery. Their senators will all vote for an end of slavery in the country. Mm-hmm. So this is going to mean the end of it. And, of course, we know later in later American history the the pressure from bringing in new states in the Louisiana Territory was going to lead to all kinds of 
slavery-related political problems. Yeah, and unhappiness with the Missouri Compromise right. contributed to that right up to the Civil War. Yes. That's really interesting. Um, so what do you take from this era that you studied so rigorously that could, form, could inform our views now about what's going on in the U.S.? Well, oh boy, um, hmm. there, are, there are several things. I, I think the two main things are that, first of all, the chief political principle of these people is federalism, mm -hmm. that is the decentralized government. Je so my immediate previous book to this was called Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, and it was a book about Jefferson's political principles and how they worked out in his career. And the longest chapter is on the federalism principle which is, again, the idea that, uh, as he put it in a famous letter, Jefferson did, if matters came to an argument between the states and the federal government, I would prefer the states. But then, that's not the end of it. Within a state, I would prefer counties, and within counties, I would prefer wards, what we would call precincts. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson had the idea that, well, most people could not be like him, president, vice president, secretary of state, governor, minister to France. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you decentralize the government enough, then the common Joe, or nowadays also Jane, could be involved with her uh, neighbors in deciding what kind of society they were going to live in. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is the kind of through line through the whole book. People who are Jeffersonians had in the 1790s deposed Hamiltonianism because Hamiltonianism was about the good that could be done with the centralized government. Mm -hmm. And they thought the American Revolution had been not for that. Mm -hmm. that, that sounded vaguely British, mm -hmm. which Hamilton didn't hide. Right. Um, so I think this is a good principle still now. Mm -hmm. A lot of our problems in federal politics are about the fact that we have this federal government that is trying simultaneously to decide questions for Mississippi and California. And if we follow the Jeffersonian principles, well, People in Mississippi and California could have their own kind of governments, and they'd, people in both of those states would be happier if we had a more decentralized government. So mm -hmm. I think this is a practical applicability of, uh, of the stories I discuss in this book. But the book isn't intended to be a kind of no. sermon to contemporaries. It doesn't contemporaries. read like that, no. Yeah, yeah. But when you write about and read about history, uh, you t I tend to... Uh, apply it or think about it in terms of how it would apply now to right right um and we're still going through that as you say that small federal government versus uh, centralized government i guess that's never gone away no it hasn't although one could think that hamilton's side won this dispute long ago <laughs> yeah, well that's true <laughs> about the debt right especially. right <laughs> <laughs> So you've written several books, very successful books. Are you going to go on MSNBC and be a history commentator now and take your career to the next level like that? Uh, well, I don't mind doing public commentary, but I think it, people ought to be more interested in the history of the country for its own sake. Mm -hmm. right? it's, not, it's not utilitarian in the sense of... Uh, wanting to bludgeon people with, well, you know, Albert Gallatin disagreed with you. <laughs> uh, instead, I think there's something to be gained from paying respectful attention to the way that bygone people wrestled with contemporary problems. And a lot of them, of course, do have their resonances now. Mm -hmm. So I think we've been in the last few years in a 
in a kind of situation in our country in which people start by saying, well, how did people in the past disagree with me and how bad does that mean they were, mm -hmm. right? I, I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. That's anachronistic. Mm -hmm. So one tries to put oneself in the shoes of bygone people and to understand the options they faced and the way they understood them. And I think I ended up with a very respectful evaluation of some of the people in this book that I had not expected to respect that much mm -hmm. when I went into it. So it was, it was an interesting project in itself. Mm -hmm. That idea has resonance now, resonance now also, right, with the Supreme Court. What, right. And the, the debate about cons true constructionists and right. all that. Right. Well, that, uh, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the country. Mm -hmm. So the Jeffersonian, well, I tell my, f my first semester undergraduates when we're talking about the uh, debate in President Washington's cabinet over Hamilton's bank bill, okay, I'm going to describe the way that Hamilton and Jefferson told President Washington that he should read the Constitution. And then when I finish describing Hamilton's position and Jefferson's position, I say, have you heard these arguments before? Right? And of course, the answer is, well, yes, mm -hmm. this is the way we still talk about the Constitution. In general, uh, Democrats are Hamiltonian when it comes to the Constitution and Republicans are Jeffersonian when it comes mm -hmm. to the Constitution. So I don't really know how else, what, what other method there would be for approaching the Constitution. Either you take a kind of pragmatic view that, well, if the policy is generally good and there's not an express prohibition of following it, then it's okay to adopt it, which is the Democratic slash Hamiltonian position. Or uh, there's a popular ratification of the Constitution with a particular uh, argument about how it would be read that was given in the late uh, 18th century. And so that's binding on the government. Mm -hmm. So uh, we haven't really moved beyond that. There's, I don't really see how you could move beyond that. That's yeah. really what you, you know, either popular consent means that the people's understanding is binding or people who are in office are free to do whatever they think is a good idea, mm -hmm. which seems to me vaguely on its surface to be inconsistent with the idea of a, of a constitutional government. But, mm -hmm. but you can kind of tell from my undertaking <laughs> these projects, I'm not exactly a Hamiltonian. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> That's where elections come in, right? right they can vote right. them out, et cetera. Yes. <laughs> All right, what's your next project? Oh, boy, well, um, this book took me five years to write. Mm -hmm. And when I finished my immediate previous book, Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, I turned it into my uh, editor at St. Martin's Press, and I said to him, okay, I want another contract. And he said, don't you want to take a break? And I said, no, no, I have this great idea, and I described this book to him. Now, I'm the kind of person who, if he has an obligation, can't do anything without thinking, I should be working on that. Right? Mm -hmm. Couldn't go to church, couldn't watch a football game, couldn't talk to my kids on the phone, whatever, uh, without thinking, I really ought to be working on, you know, Albert Galton's backstory or whatever it was. And so what that means is that for basically eight years, I always had something bearing down on me. Mm -hmm. Right now, I don't. I decided I would take a break. That's good. So, <laughs> I, but I have begun doing kind of preparatory work for a, a new project. Cool. We'll see how that works out. So we can have you back on the podcast again. Oh, right? I promise. Is that going to be five years or eight years? No, it's not going to take as long. Good. What I have in mind is uh, an account of what's called the revisal of the laws. So when the American Revolution started in Virginia, Jefferson had the idea, well, 
we ought to evaluate all of our court precedents and all of our statutes in Virginia and check them against republicanism. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that they're not Republican, that they're monarchical, we ought to revise them. Mm -hmm. And so what came out of this was a large package of proposed new legislation that would correct, quote unquote correct, Virginia's legal system to make it Republican. And somehow, although Jefferson was the chief author of these bills and Madison was the guy who guided most of them through the legislature, mm -hmm. there's not a monograph on the subject. <laughs> so it's an interesting subject. It covers a gamut of political policy. And uh, this is probably what I'm going to do next. But as I said, I don't have a contract. <laughs> I don't have any deadlines right now. I'm kind That's of happy good. with that. Yes, I imagine. <laughs> but so much of what happened in Virginia became what happened with the Constitution, right, in the yes. United States. Yes, what happened most famously uh, in what's called the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, Jefferson wrote into uh, Virginia's statute law his preferred policy about church-state relations. Mm -hmm. And one element of the book we've been talking about, The Jeffersonians, my new book, is uh, correspondence he had with a group of people who were called the Danbury Baptists, mm -hmm about their hope, that is the Danbury Baptist's hope and President Jefferson's hope, that eventually Connecticut would finally adopt this same policy. And so by the time James Monroe left the White House, Connecticut had finally abolished its Puritan establishment and gone full Jeffersonian on this mm. <laughs> issue. So this was a very influential uh, set of proposed revisals that uh, Jefferson made or presented in Virginia. And as I say, Madison happened to be in the legislature when many of them came up and he was their chief mm -hmm. proponent. So a lot of this is going to have effect way beyond Virginia, right. including that a lot of the chief precedents now um, in American constitutional law for, especially for understanding the establishment clause of the First Amendment are based on Jefferson's revisal of laws in Virginia. Mm. So that would be fascinating. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Guzman, thanks so much for joining us again. Congratulations on your new book, and um, everybody should read it. Well, you're welcome, and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, so that was interesting and a uh, good indication of the kind of professorial talent we have here at Western Connecticut State University. Yeah, I wish I, I would have taken more uh, history classes had I known yes. when I was here. Uh, I wonder if he was here when I was here. He said 23 years ago. Mm, yeah, I was a student 23 years ago. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe you took it and don't remember. No, I didn't. <laughs> I only took one or two <laughs> history classes and I knew they weren't with him. Um, yeah. I think you would have remembered if you had him. It yeah, sure. It sounds like it would have yeah. been rigorous. Memorable. Yes. All right. Well, I'm Paul Steinmetz, he's Pete Puccio, and this is At WCSU. We'll see you next time. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Volpe. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at WCSU Podcasts, and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.